Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, coming to you from the isolation of our homes. Bake sales, embracing bitterness, coffee complexity, and please don't drink hand sanitizer. Hello, Joshna. Hi, Mirella. How are you? I'm uh, not handling the heat very well. I have to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a hard one. Uh, it's a hard one. You staying still in some darkness over there? Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm a cold weather gal. I am too. I really I feel am. like uh, you know everyone should pick. Yep. We live in a place where it's horribly cold in the winter and horribly warm in the summer. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, you can choose to be miserable year round or pick one of the two and, right. and, and go true. with it, and then just complain fifty percent of the time. Yeah, it's true. But and I am I join you. I am not one of those at least it isn't snowing. I'd be quite delighted if it was snowing. <laughs> In the meantime, what are we talking about today? Uh okay, this is really one of my most favorite stories. I was so delighted to to hear to read more backstory about this, but essentially we're talking about the power of the bake sale. Uh, yes. And hopefully uh, everybody sort of has some memory of a school version of this or some way for a small community to raise some money. Um, but what what this has emerged recently in the context of this really intense moment around race and racism that we are having, um, that there is this opportunity for some solidarity. And, and then obviously there's a need to raise some funds um, and so there is uh, this wonderful organization uh, led by some chefs and pastry chefs, specifically in the U.S., um, called Bakers Against Racism. Yes. And it's just, I mean, it's the loveliest thing. Uh, and I had seen some so local simple. bakers. I know, I know. <laughs> I had seen some local, pa- like my pastry chef pals, uh, doing this a couple of weekends ago. They did their promotion and via social media, they sort of, they outlined what they were selling and where the proceeds were going. And I bought two gorgeous bags of salted chocolate chip cookies uh, that oh, were yum. just, you know, picked up on a bench uh, outside my good friend's house uh, and all the proceeds went towards this. And I think in that one weekend, tens of thousands of dollars were raised. So um, it was just that one day or is it yeah, June, June an 20th, ongoing initiative? June 20th. I believe okay. it is now ongoing. I think based on the great success of that effort, but June yeah. 20th was the day that this all happened. And that, and that bakers, I think around the world, because there, I heard about bakers in Berlin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I saw Europe, it was right? uh, f- 15 countries and uh, 2,400 official participants. It's the most glorious thing. Uh, That's a lot of cookies. It's a lot <laughs> of cookies. Uh, and then I found, I read a bit more. I found some background to this. And the thing that has really gotten me excited was the gendered piece around all of this, right? Mm-hmm. And because uh, women uh, historically have, you know, had limited access to certain areas of public sphere and public space, they were often relegated to the kitchen. The kitchen was the place. That was where women had power, was the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that they would just use those skills uh, and raise tiny because it's an incremental, right? The money yeah. that you make, one cupcake, one sticky bun at a time. Uh, it's a lot of hard work to raise money, uh, but they did it, right? Yes. They did it and they pulled it off. And that I really, really love. I love the idea that it's like, use whatever skills you've got. In fact, I think one of the bakers in this article said, everybody has a role to play and you can use what you're good at to push forward the cause. 
right? If you're a musician, you write a song. If you're an artist, you paint or sculpt. If you're a baker, you bake. Uh, and that, like, I just, the sentiment of that just really speaks to me. I think it's very beautiful. It's lovely. And I do really like that subversion of, you know, oh, we're relegated to the kitchen. Well, guess what? We're going to figure out right. how to make change from here in, uh, an, you know, a not insignificant way. I, I mean, they've raised a lot of money through this bake sale. Yes. Uh, some wonderful organizations. Uh, it, it, that's exactly it. And it's, it's going to very different places depending on what the need in the community is, which I think is gorgeous. Um, and it really, it reminded me of another piece that I read about a woman who sold fried chicken sandwiches in the right, same Georgia spirit, Gilmore. Right? There we go. Georgia Gilmore. And just, I mean, for our listeners, this story, this glorious woman decided to sell fried chicken sandwiches at, at the very sort of grassroots when people were, you know, just in transit for finishing work. Uh, you know, church was another option. But essentially, this wonderful woman was able to raise enough money by selling her fried chicken sandwiches that she was able to pay for the gas required for the, the supplementary vehicle that uh, Black Americans used to enable them to boycott the bus system, right? They had, there was protests to boycott the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama, um, but they all still had to get to work. So there was this troop, this fleet of other cars and trucks and things that were moving Black people around when they were not taking the bus. And this lady's fried chicken sandwiches paid for all that gas. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, essentially, she and the the women she inspired, obviously, she didn't do it entirely by herself, but she yep. absolutely was critical to the entire operation. I mean, she was the energy behind it and the she had the idea. But uh, I just loved the story because, of course, yes, now, you know, the black people in Montgomery have decided they're going to boycott the bus until the buses are desegregated. Right. And they do need this money. But I really love that she called her her cooking club the club out of nowhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's true. Because the whole idea was that, you know, everyone was like, how are all these people finding the money to get these buses and, the, gas right. and the car insurance? Where did these resources And they would say, from, oh, it right? came out of nowhere. <laughs> also, just really loved the, the portrayal of her in these articles because mm -hmm. um, they really made it clear like what a strong uh, person she was. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe she was fired from her real job, her day job. Yes. Yes. Because she testified for Martin Luther King in a trial. Oh my goodness. I don't know that. And she okay. was uh, incredibly vocal. And at the time, obviously there were consequences. Mm-hmm at a time where segregation was still very real. Um, you know, her boss didn't hesitate to fire her. And the other thing that I thought was especially nifty about her initiative with the cooking is that it flew under the radar, right? Yes. Because no one thinks of, again, women relegated to the kitchen. If the women are cooking, then they're not, how, what, what harm can they be doing? That's it. What, what, what could they it. possibly be contributing? Right. And she was very clever. She made sure that everything was run on a cash only basis. And this jumped right. out at me. I thought it was really interesting because on, on one hand, it meant that black supporters would not get in trouble with their employers because they were just buying food 
for cash. Yes, yes. So there yes, was yes. no, it was not obvious what they were mm-hmm. supporting. And then on the other hand, it also allowed white donors to hold on to their social standing. Right. Right. Because so it they, worked they both could, ways, was but a, for a very clean. different reasons. That's so interesting. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. First of all, she's someone we should all know about. But the, the other piece that really struck me, and um, I don't know, have you, did you learn about Rosa Parks at school? I did. I did. In school, I did. Uh, as, as sort of one of the key players in, you know, in the like two pages that the, um, the textbook offered to American history. Uh, it was her, MLK, you know, Malcolm X, and that was pretty much it on that conversation. Right. Well, I had this very um, important moment, and it wasn't that long ago, maybe maybe two years ago. I was right. in the U.S. at a museum, a civil rights museum of some sort. Uh, and I had a huge realization because when I was taught about Rosa Parks, of course, the famous woman who started the whole mm-hmm. uh, the whole bus protest mm-hmm. because she wouldn't uh, move to her appropriate section. Right. You know, I was taught that she was, you know, just a tired old lady mm-hmm. who just didn't feel like yes, yes. moving. Um, that's what was taught You're right. in schools. And she was painted out just to be this, just a, you know, an ordinary person. Who right, did who never intended, thing. yeah. Never intended Meanwhile, to be a revolutionary. Yeah. Two years ago, I'm in this in this museum and there uh, it was an exhibit on the history of desegregation in the okay. U.S. And it turns out she was an activist. Yes. She Very had been an activist yes. long before that. And she, you know, she wasn't just like a tired you know, lady, yeah. a tired person who just, you know, did this everyday act of courage or, or whatever. It was a protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was yep. so angry to find that out yeah, and to too. find out about that portrayal. And so when I saw this portrayal of Georgia Gilmore, even though I didn't know who she was, the fact that they painted this really clear picture of how feisty she was, mm-hmm. I think when, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, she also had, was questioned about the, the, the bus thing. I don't remember. The article wasn't super clear. Mm-hmm. The various trials that she, it sounds like she was pretty active. It sounds like it was a lot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, basically she was, she quoted as saying, you know, once the driver has the money, it, it's the same money. It doesn't it yes. doesn't matter who gave it to them. It so why matter. do they care where we sit on the bus? So that's it. just clearly a very vocal person. Yep. Um, and I don't know if you read this detail, but I wanted to share it with you specifically because I Tell feel me. like you're gonna you're gonna love this if you didn't know it already. So okay. um, she died at a fairly advanced age, but she died on the 25th anniversary of the march to Selma. Oh wow! So that morning she was cooking a huge meal again I guess that was Uh, what she did right cooking a huge meal for all the people who were going to be attending this 25th anniversary celebration oh my god and she passed that day and um her family served her food that she had cooked that morning oh my god whoa that's that's wow Oh my God, I have major feelings. <laughs> just thinking uh, yeah, I'm that. I'm tearing up right now. Oh Isn't my God, that... holy smokes, that's beautiful. Wow. Well, and what uh, what a thing on that day to be able to eat food that came from. Oh, man, that's me. That's that's incredible. Thank you for that. I wanted to share uh, that with you because oh, I I thought uh, uh, 
I mean, it's so beautiful. That's incredible. It's, uh, and you know, all of this, oh, this is so, I mean, just the possibility that women have with power in the kitchen is a thing that we don't think nearly enough of, right? It's really, really something. This is obviously a great example. I have been really deep in uh, reading about um, South Africa because that is Mm -hmm. my family's heritage. Uh, I was born there. And one of these beautiful stories that I have found is um, is this story because there were some Indian people connected to the Black Africans for their, you know, essentially a fight for freedom and mm-hmm. liberation with the ANC, the African National Congress. Uh, but I was delighted to find out that these underground ANC meetings were fueled by giant pots of chicken curry. <laughs> right. And that it was yeah. Indian women that would show up. But then other stories I found out were that um, often notes to prisoners would be interleaved between rotis in the stack of the flatbreads that the women oh, cool. would make, right? And so they would make them and deliver this food. Just the notion that you take somebody food in prison is sort of amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that these wonderful women would tell the guards that they had a lot of mouths to feed at home and they were super poor and that's why they needed any leftovers to be returned. And that's how they could ensure that the message would come back from whoever read that now greasy note in between, right? And I think about these women, Morella, standing at the stove, toasting these things like they have for, you know what I mean, countless times before, yet knowing what is going to be required of them and that they're going to have to pull this off with some level of stealth and seamlessness, right? So as not to raise any suspicion. And that, that really just has me super fired up about where you find your power, essentially, right? This is, that's For all sure. this is. It's, it's, uh, and, 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 and taking advantage of the that's fact it. that you're being underestimated. Yes. And that yes. cooking is seen as a harmless thing because uh, it's in the yes. women's Innocuous, exactly. Josh and I, I came across this perplexing study and I wanted to run it by you. Okay. It was a study that was done uh, at Penn State by some sensory researchers. Got it. They're trying to understand bitterness in food a little bit better. Okay. And so they rounded up uh, a range of beer drinkers. And what they wanted to see is if these beer drinkers would be able to distinguish from between different types of bitterness. So they took just a off-the-shelf, non-alcoholic beer that wasn't particularly bitter, and they bittered it in three different ways. One sample they bittered with the kinds of compounds that are in beer, hop-derived compounds. Right, okay, okay. The second one they bittered with quinine, which is what's in tonic water, mm-hmm. an equally bitter compound. And then the third one they bittered with this thing I haven't heard of called sucrose octacetate, which is okay. apparently that stuff that they that you can buy if you if uh, someone's biting their nails and uh, you can paint it the, on the, like the nail polish kind of got it got yeah. it I know what you're talking about to dissuade and people from nail biting another piece right right oh yeah they do it for um, the too yeah so. I'm very confused by this study, but basically what they did is they made sure that the bitterness levels were equal. So all three had the same intensity right. of bitterness. It was just a different type of bitterness, you know, a hop drive bitterness versus a quinine drive mm-hmm, bitterness mm-hmm. Uh, versus, uh, you know, someone who shouldn't be sucking their thumb bitterness. A more chemically derived thing too. Yeah. Um, and then they had these beer drinkers taste the three samples, 
They tried to determine if they could tell a difference between the three samples. And then they had them rank them, a force ranking. So they had to say which they like best and which they like the least. Right, okay. And the results were a little weird. Yes. First of all, they were able to determine that people could tell the difference between the three bitternesses. They could definitely tell these are not the same. Different sources of bitter, okay. Mm -hmm. The second conclusion, which does not surprise me at all, is that they, even though they could tell the bitternesses were different, they couldn't describe how the bitterness mm. was different. Okay, that makes sense. Which, that's an incredibly advanced sensory request yep. to make of someone. The other very interesting thing is that the type of bitterness did not impact their preference at all. Right. So they were just as happy to drink the, the hop-derived bitterness beer as they were the quinine-derived bitterness beer. or the, As long as it was bitter, they were happy. It didn't matter. What a thing. I struggle to understand what this study is telling us. So I thought I'd share it with you to see if mm -hmm. maybe you could see some insights that I that I missed somewhere. Yeah, I I was also quite perplexed by this one because I I was like, okay, so what is what are we learning here, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that really struck me was just um, that that perhaps we've made a real mistake with um, with sort of we with like vilifying bitterness, right? Right, that we bitter is a flavor that we avoid. It's not good. We uh, and I, we talked about this in an early episode, I think, in season one, where I was talking about how, from a culinary perspective, I always have to 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 cancel out bitterness. Right, right. I, I use tricks like acid or sweetness or things like that to try and counter out the bitterness of greens, or, you know, or other things like Even that. Even though bitterness is so healthy for us this, in terms and it's of so the digestion and all right? the other exactly. aspects. Yeah, uh, but we don't we don't do this. It's a reason why kids and vegetables and green things, the bitterness of green things, we we were cool with just letting them feel that that is a bad flavor that is to be avoided, right? So to a certain degree, I wonder if part of the inability of these uh, folks to distinguish is because we don't ever let ourselves get too far into considering bitterness. It's anytime there's bitterness, we're like, out, out, we're done, abort, we're finished. See, right? so now you're making me think, I wonder if we this whole anti-bitterness thing is more culturally driven than anything. Like maybe we yes. are assuming that children won't like bitterness. Yes, we are. Because yes. we are t given this stereotype that children don't like broccoli, which mm -hmm. in my, you know, I have never seen, I've never witnessed personally. No, exactly. Um, and so maybe we are shying away from presenting bitterness to, to people when, so. when we could go ahead because and, and delve into the happy to embrace kinds. it in many forms. Exactly. Exactly. I believe that there's some of that that we need to make friends with bitterness. Yeah. Right. Uh, and allow ourselves to sit with things that are bitter and not just need to remove them instantly or to kill them with lemon juice or sweetness or, you know, just like hang out with some bitterness. Yeah. Think about it. Consider it. It's not, it's not toxic. It's not poison. You know what I mean? It's just an intense sensation. Just chill out a little bit and hang out with it. The same way we have a tolerance for chili and heat. Yeah. Right. And we all know that there are different kinds of chili and heat available, but we, we all have such ignorance about all the varying kinds of bitterness that we can get. And that's, I think that's part of this problem, right? Is that they can't distinguish between bitterness because we have no knowledge of any of this and we don't, we don't offer our time to consider it. 
I like that perspective. I like it very much because going back into the study, I, I mean, I, I think I'm going to try to follow these people a little bit and try to mm-hmm. better understand what they're trying to do because they were saying that, you know, the purpose of the study really is to better understand bitterness ac- acceptance because they want to increase bitterness consumption and liking, which I think exactly. is great. Exactly. Me too. Um, that being said, if you're trying to increase bitterness liking, maybe beer drinkers aren't your primary uh, yeah. target audience. We, we love bitterness. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, and then they, they also drew another conclusion, which I was not very happy with. And what they were saying is, you know, because clearly beer drinkers don't care what the type of bitterness is maybe breweries have a lot more leeway in their recipe creation and maybe you know maybe Uh, breweries don't have to worry so much about you know making sure they're hitting targets and i think that was uh wrong Mm -hmm. it was wrong (laughs) it was misguided and wrong yeah well these people clearly don't you know aren't you know what i'm gonna go ahead and say they are not beer drinkers because you know, if someone prefers one IPA over another IPA, it's not because the one IPA had hop derived bitterness and the other one had quinine derived bitterness. Exactly. They all had hop derived bitterness. And the two things that are going to impact the acceptance or the of that uh, IPA are the level of bitterness. So they we call them IBUs, the, oh, which is great. the okay. measure of dissolved isoalpha acid so the actual measurements of bitterness in that beer mm, so some people okay. will prefer a much more bitter ipa and some people uh, currently the trend is towards less bitter ipas which are these new england style ipas got it okay and then the other thing is going to be the other thing that uh, the other aspects that the hop bring to the beer which is is it giving me lovely tropical aromas is it giving me a white wine aroma is it giving mm-hmm. me citrus aromas these are the things that are going to draw people to one IPA over another, not yes. the, the type of bitterness. So, so yeah, confusing overall, but I, I really like your, I like your pro your insights. And I think, I think they're, you know, if, if nothing else, the fact that IPAs are so huge right now are illustrating that people are way more open to bitterness Definitely. than we want to believe. Definitely we are right. And we're seeing it even, I mean, even just simple things, like the proliferation of kale, uh, right. right? And deep, deep, deep grains as superfoods. Bitterness is a, is a huge part of all of that. Um, and, and it can be enjoyable, right? It's not always, it's not always an awful experience, oh, right? I, I love it. <laughs> I, I, I do too. I do too. I think it's quite, I think it's quite compelling. Uh, and particularly uh, when you have a tannic experience of it sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, on a really, really dry white wine, yeah. you know, get a little hit of that which i think is uh, i that's good drinking for me oh, like making me thirsty Joshna, are you a hot brew or a cold brew kind of gal uh, it is the season for cold brew uh, and i have had a couple of them uh and i am a big fan i enjoy the flavor of cold brewed coffee much more actually have you made it before? I have never made it. Oh, it's super I never, easy. I had, and, and I just, it just by virtue of this piece that you shared that had me being like, why aren't I doing it? I always mysteriously thought that this is something that I had to go and have uh, somebody else make for me with whatever fancy gadget they had. I didn't realize that I could just do it. You just need a, a bag. I have a cloth bag that I bought and you just literally soak the grounds in water. 
So you're ste- it. it's essentially it's a tea. You're steeping. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're essentially um, steeping cold brew. Okay. So it's interesting because I've I've made both. I use the same coffee beans, and I've it's always intrigued me that they taste completely different, even mm-hmm. though they're made from the same coffee beans. And of course, if you take a hot coffee and you cool it, it doesn't taste like cold brew. It does and not. If you take uh, it, just, it's just like a completely different thing. And I, I just always assume that it had to do with the fact that it's steeped at different temperatures. And at different temperatures, different compounds will extract. Right. Uh, but it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than that. So I was pretty happy to come across this article. I was too. There were, I learned a lot about the, the brewing process that I did not know before. I was very happy. with the, Like it filled in a lot of gaps in my knowledge there, which was cool. What were the most surprising bits for you? Um, I uh, One of the most surprising thing was learning that it's the hot brewing that develops bitterness and acidity in the coffee. I right. really had assumed that that was all about the roasting. Mm-hmm. Right? That my, my, my culinary knowledge really just sort of kept me there. I had no idea that that was actually about the increase in temperature and the hot water and that, and that whole process, uh, which I was like, huh, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. Well, I think in, in a sense you are right, because it is the, the heat that compounds the bitterness and acidity. So some of that does happen in the roasting. Right, right. But then there is the next step. And that's certainly the difference, because before I discovered cold brew, I would just make my uh, espresso and put it in the fridge. And mm-hmm. that's what I would drink. And that is definitely a lot more bitter than cold brew. Definitely. Which has a bit of a, I don't know, just a bit of a silkiness to it. It is smooth and difference. silky, right? Yes. And I had one recently that had some like vanilla sweet cream involved. Mm-hmm. I usually just drink the cold brew black. Yeah. Uh, but with this vanilla, I was like, what is this smooth, heavenly thing? Like it was noticeably, I was like, oh, cool. oh, hello. Welcome back, cold the thing that surprised me the most in this article was to find out that all roasts have the same level of caffeine in them. Oh, yes, yes. I had always thought that the more you roasted, a, like a darker roast had less caffeine in it because as you roasted it, you were denaturing the caffeine. It's, I don't know, because yeah. I'd heard that espresso is less caffeinated than uh, percolator coffee. It, so yes, I, yes, I, yes. I assume that that had to do with the roast, but... Uh, Apparently, according to these uh, scientists, these coffee scientists, yes, coffee scientists, the the level of caffeine really just has to do with the coffee to water ratio. So the more that was fascinating, coffee right? to and water you have, obviously, the more the caffeine there is. But the it. the roast has no impact. Very very useful. Like I didn't I didn't know that at all. That was very uh, very surprising and just sort of amazing to see how we've all been running around with. It's pretty wrong information about coffee, a thing that we consume so much of. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a bit laughable to imagine that it's like that. Mm, and I, I've, I've de- devoted quite a bit of my life to, to perfecting coffee. I had a, a bit of an upsetting incident a, co- a couple of years ago in Italy where I made an espresso for a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And I, f- I made it for him and he took one sip and he said, this is not drinkable. Oh, wow. And he threw it out, and then he taught me how to make uh, the espresso. This is with the stovetop device. Okay. And so in the subsequent days, because I was in Italy at the time, I visited my various family members, and I asked them, you know, when I've had you over for coffee, was my coffee horrible? 
And they all said yes. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> they said, why didn't you tell me? And they're like, well, we just, you're not Italian. We just assumed you were doing your best, oh. uh, which I found a little bit offensive. Because, yeah. um, you know, all I needed was someone to teach me to do yes. it properly. But again, it was uh, heat related. And it was the fact that if you, uh, if you're too quick with that stove top and your temperature is too high, uh, there are various other factors, of course, but mm. um, then you get that increased bitterness, which they describe in Italian as uh, bruciato, which means uh, yeah. burnt. Yes, yes, um, yes. And okay. is also a very real thing with espresso machines. And so, so now since I learned how to make it properly, now I can tell when it's not right. Okay. Whereas before, obviously, I was making it improperly. No mm -hmm. all that. So I've been like quite obsessed with all these details of coffee making. Anyway, for the listeners who are interested, they have found the perfect ratio um, of coffee to water. Apparently, the biggest mistake when making a hot brew is mm -hmm. not enough coffee to, to water right. ratio. So it's supposed to be one ounce coffee to 18 ounces of water. Uh, and interestingly, with cold brew, they haven't found the perfect ratio yet because it's, it's too new. A phenomenon. Mm, okay. So they they're still yet. they're still working One to on that. Eighteen ounces. Yeah. Right. And and a fluid cup is eight ounces. It's eight ounces. So I'm guessing they're talking about when you're making a pot. Yeah, but but that means case. Uh, one ounce of coffee beans. One ounce of coffee grounds. Two. It says 18? one ounce of coffee to eighteen ounces of water. Okay, the ounce that helps because that's bigger. An ounce is bigger than that average scoop that we have in the coffee tin. Ah, it is? It's bigger. An ounce okay, is bigger. so that That's explains yeah, that, that explains why people are maybe a little short yes. normally when yes. they make their coffees. Uh, I love but, that. Uh, One of the other funniest things, the thing that made yeah. me laugh about this piece, was how deep they went talking about the free radicals and the antioxidants yeah, and the, 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 the <laughs> bioavailability of all the nutrition. And I was like, show me one person reaching for a morning cup of coffee who's like, I need my free radicals. I need to maximize my antioxidants. Like that's, yes. that's sort of laughable thing. I'm, I'm doing this for my health. <laughs> <laughs> Mental health, maybe. Indeed. <laughs> anyway, so in summary, um, coffee is incredibly complex. And what I've yes. learned from this article is that uh, every aspect of the coffee that you make is impacted by the water temperature, the grind size, the brewing time, the filter type, and the coffee type. So those are the five variables and any small change in any of those variables is going to completely change the flavor of your coffee. I love that. I'm very excited to start making my own cold brew. Oh, do it. Ah, that's going to be so, I'm, I'll report back. I'm very excited about that. So, Josh, you remember in our pandemic pantry episode, we talked about all of these distilleries and breweries that are now turning to making hand sanitizer? Yes, yes, of course. Right? Uh, for COVID. And we also talked about the fact that the little containers are hard to to source, so they're just packaging in their cans or yes, their bottles. Yes, and that's how they were quickly uh, getting it out there. Right. Yeah. Um, well, there's a little hiccup that <laughs> we didn't foresee, which I was... Not surprised to read about in retrospect, it totally makes sense, but uh, it appears that in their zeal to be youthful, a lot of these uh, distilleries and breweries have inadvertently created a real hazard in the home so because people have this hand sanitizer 
that looks like water of wine. or beer or yeah, wine. It is, I couldn't believe. Like, it's like, obviously, when you look at these things and you realize what's inside, you're like, yeah, yeah for sure. That's why there needs to be some sort of label saying, please do not drink. Uh, I think it's incredible that some of the design, like I saw one wine bottle that actually had a really sort of like scripted cursive looking thing that said sanitizer. Yeah. Right. And I was like, no, God, how did we miss this is what it I looked like. It could have been balsamic vinegar or something, yeah, totally, totally. you know, oh, it, it, I mean, I, put a skull and crossbones on it. Put a war put, you know, put a warning label on the thing. Uh, I was also very entertained that, some of them put a bittering agent in the sanitizer. Right. You know, to protect people. It's just like, no, I think to protect people, you need to make sure they don't sip it to begin with. Cause I'm pretty sure that after the first sip, they're going to understand. They're going to understand that this was an I'm sure hand, hand sanitizer yeah. doesn't taste good to begin. I, you know, I haven't tried it. I have, never don't knock until it you try it. Exactly. But I'm, I strongly suspect that if you're expecting to chug a beer and you have like a swig of sanitizer, you'll be spitting it out, whether it's got a bittering agent in it or not. I think you're right. This is, uh, I mean, I'm delighted that there is some safety measures have been taken and some revisiting of the labels is starting to happen. But that uh, it's, it's really funny that in the panic to get it out there, right. Mm -hmm. And to just push a thing through, because usually well, like we're usually pretty good about stuff like this, right? Yes. <laughs> this is not uh, this is not something that usually confounds us. So we're going to guess that in the madness of early days of the pandemic, just the urge to get this stuff out there and and ideally, I think, keep people safe, uh, made us overlook this one piece. And it's a very real threat, right? Poison, Canadian poison control has reported uh, a doubling of yes sanitizer of exposure. Of exposure. <laughs> It, since January, so it's uh, it's crazy to think about, but they've caught it now, so I'm sure they're going to relabel yeah, and fix amazing. everything. And in the meantime, which I'm finding very entertaining, they're asking everyone to warn their children about the dangers of drinking sanitizer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and common sense, don't store the sanitizer in the can next to your beer. In the fridge, yeah. Uh, in the fridge. <laughs> If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at hotplatepod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.